It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Fortsanopoly Cultural Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. On today's episode, we're not going to cover all the news. We'll do that next episode, but we will review the decision of the National Sports Court of Appeals We'll also recap the latest round of Serie B, and we'll recap Napoli Femenile's match against Milan in Part 1. In Part 2, we'll review Napoli's win on Sunday over Bologna, and in Part 3, we'll recap all the other action from Match Day 7. So let's start with the decision of the National Sports Court of Appeals. On Tuesday, the court confirmed the decision to give Napoli a 3-0 loss and to deduct a point from the table. The hearing was held on Monday, but the decision was postponed by a day when the six-page decision was released. The decision was written by four members of the court, the President Piero Sanduli, Vice President Lorenzo Atolico, Maurizio Borgo, who's the speaker, and Carlo Bravi, who's the representative of the AIA. The decision starts with a quick summary of the case and Napoli's appeal, which is to claim force majeure and factum principis. For those who may be new to the pod and aren't familiar with the legal jargon, Napoli essentially claimed that unforeseeable circumstances prevented him from attending the match. Factum principis is a situation when the state, for various reasons and public interest, interfere in a private legal relationship, changing their effect and unbalancing legal relationships already established. So that amounts to the claim that the local health authority, the ASL, prevented Napoli from traveling. Then the court reiterated that the ultimate goal of the sports system is to enhance sporting merit, loyalty, honesty, and healthy competitive spirit. The court ultimately ruled that this principle was not respected as Napoli's behavior in the days preceding the match aimed at pre-establishing an alibi for not playing that game and that Napoli's failure to dispute the match did not depend on force majeure or factum principis. 
The decision points to a note from the sports judge saying, with this deed in response to the email on the same date from the aforementioned health manager relating to the positivity of two employees of the Napoli Societa, it was communicated in a clear and unequivocal manner that, quote, the responsibility in implementing the protocols provided by the FIGC for the containment of the COVID-19 epidemic is in the hands of the Naples company and therefore this company has no competence. Then the decision explains why the court ruled that Napoli's failure to dispute the match was predetermined. First, it says that the very fact that Napoli requested clarification on a protocol that they were well aware of and have been applying regularly is difficult to understand, and the only explanation is that Napoli were pre-arranging justification for a match that they had already decided not to play. Personally, given the facts and having seen the letters between the club and the ASLs, I think that determination by the court was a bit of a leap. There was mass confusion while this was all playing out, so it seems perfectly legitimate to me to seek clarification. The decision adds that the repeated request for clarification on the consequences of fiduciary isolation and the fact that Napoli cancelled their flight the night before the match further suggests that Napoli planned not to dispute the match. Finally, the court says, above all else, the decision of the club to cancel the swab scheduled for the morning of the match is not at all irrelevant and that a club that voluntarily put themselves in a position of not being able to do something cannot also claim that they were not allowed to do something. The decision also explained that Napoli tried to introduce a third argument, which I must admit is a little difficult to work out. It sounds like the argument is the club, in collaboration with the president of the Campania region and his office, who do not have any technical skills and knowledge in health matters, sought the express authorization of the Napoli ASL to travel to Torino, and since that was not granted, as evidenced by the obligation of fiduciary isolation, the close contacts of those who tested positive, namely the rest of the team, were not permitted to travel on this. The court said that this was a clear attempt to frustrate the motivation of the health protocols, which were created to permit Serie A to continue during this health emergency. Apparently, Napoli also argued that the protocols were put in place when COVID was on a sharp decline, while this match was scheduled during a time when the virus began to spread again. The court responded that this is irrelevant and that, like all the other clubs, Napoli are not entitled to make up their own rules. Finally, the court said that Napoli's behavior was disrespectful of the entire sporting system and specifically of the other Serie A clubs who have been in similar or even worse situations with respect to COVID and have still played in their matches as scheduled. Napoli quickly responded with an official press release stating the following, The SSCN takes note of the decision of the Sports Court of Appeal and is already working to prepare an appeal to the Coney Sports Guarantee College. The SSCN does not fully agree with this sentence, which casts unacceptable shadows on the company's conduct, neglecting very clear documents in its favor and delegitimizes the work of the regional health authorities. The SSCN has always pursued values such as loyalty and sporting merit, and also in this case, it will take all initiatives to do justice to its conduct oriented towards respect for public health and to ensure that the field is the only judge to decide the result of a football match. As always, we'll keep you updated on how this situation progresses, but as we saw with the first appeal, this process, like any judicial process, takes a lot of time. Moving on, the seventh round of Serie B was played over the weekend. Brescia beat Cosenza 2-1. There were some gorgeous goals in this one. Yagello scored Brescia second with a stunning strike from over 30 yards out. Monza beat Frosinone 2-0. After failing to win in their first four matches, Monza are starting to click. They've now won two in a row. Pescara got their first win of the season, defeating Cittadella 3-1. Pescara scored all three goals in the first half, including a brace from Demir Chater. On both goals, Pescara launched the ball up to Chater and he did the rest. The third was a beautiful left-footed free kick to the top corner by Dejan Bokic. 
Karamoko Sise pulled one back in the second half, and then Chitadella had a chance to get back into the match in the 65th minute, but Monroe Yori skied his shot over the bar. Pordenone scored in the 92nd minute to draw Chievo 1-1. Vicenza scored a late winner to Vicremonese 1-0 in Foggy Cremona. That was Vicenza's first win of the season. Ampoli beat Regina 3-0. Spal beat Salernitana 2-0. Reggiana beat Vicenza 2-1. And Lecce smashed Antella 5-1. Pisa Ascoli was postponed. So after 7 rounds, Ampoli are top of the table, followed by Chievo. Frosinone, Lecce, Spal, Salernitana, Cittadella, and Venezia round out the playoff zone. At the bottom of the table, Antella, Pescara, and Cremonese are in the relegation zone, and Ascoli and Pisa are in the relegation playout spots. But all of this can change very easily, the table is quite congested, and half the league have a game in hand. Reggiana, meanwhile, have two games in hand. We'll close part one with a review of Napoli Femminile's match against Milan on Saturday. Napoli were without five players due to COVID and because of the outbreak had not trained at all heading into this match. Giuseppe Marino lined up in a 4-3-1-2 with Catalina Perez in goal. Alexandra Hune and Sofia Janssen started at centre-back. Elisabetta Oliviero played at left-back and Livia Caparelli played at right-back. Vlada Kubasova played centre-mid with Izota Noki on her left and Jenny Hillman on her right. And Alessandra Nanchoni played at the Trequartista behind Evi Popadinova and Eleonora Goldini. Evi was playing in her first match since joining the club. Milan opened the scoring in the 14th minute from the penalty spot on what was a bit of a controversial decision. Milan had a free kick at the edge of the box that supposedly came off the arm of Kubasova. Veteran striker Valentina Giacinti converted the penalty. She spent one season at Napoli in 2012-13, amassing 17 goals and 29 appearances that season. Perez had an excellent match despite the loss. Milan nearly doubled their lead in the 41st minute, but Perez made an excellent double save on Salvatore Rinaldi and Giacinti. Perez made her best save of the match early in the second half on a shot by Caroline Rask from just inside the box. Rinaldi thought she doubled Milan's lead in the 50th minute when her header found the back of the goal, but it was ruled out for offside. As good as Perez was, she made a costly mistake in the 54th minute, fumbling what should have been an easy grab. After a bit of a scramble, Giacinti redirected Laura Fusetti's shot into the back of the goal. Napoli pulled one back from the penalty spot in the 83rd minute. I thought that was also a very generous penalty call. To make matters worse, Francesca Vitale, who committed the foul, was shown a yellow card, which was her second of the match, so Milan played the final five minutes with ten women. Goldini converted the penalty, but it was too little too late. We continued our dreadful start to the season, losing 2-1. We've now lost all seven matches we've played this season. So that will do for part one. In part two, we'll review Napoli's win over Bologna on Sunday. Na cupulella cavisiera aizzata Passa scampanianna pattuleta Con manu appa pata fa guarda Tu o fa l'americano, americano, americano Sienta me chi don fa fa Tu vuoi vivere alla moda, ma se bevi Schien soda, poto siente disturbato, tu abballo rock e roll, tu gioca pesa bolla, vei sorta beccamella, chi te li dà la borsetta di mamma tua fa l'americano, americano, americano, 
Ma si nati in Italia, si entra a me non c'è sta niente fa. Ok, Napolitan, tu vuoi fare l'American, tu vuoi fare l'American. On Sunday, Napoli played Bologna in the seventh round of Serie A. Here's how it went. Final checks for the match official. And we're up and running at the Dallara. It's Bologna against Napoli for you on this Sunday evening. The Azzurri just need Milan to drop points against Verona in the evening kickoff to complete the set. But first, they need to do their bit. They might well do that with Lozano. Osimhen's header! He's back on the score sheet, hung up beautifully by Lozano. And Victor Osimhen just had to keep his header down. It's all about the final ball. Instead, he was dispossessed by Fabian Ruiz and the half-time whistle spares Palacio a caution. Bounced off a couple of challenges. It breaks kindly for Soriano. And left here for Orsolini. Palacio is there. What a block from Husay. And Orsolini can't sweep it in from close range. That was the opportunity. You sensed it would come for Bologna. And they couldn't take their chance. All eyes on Fabrizio Pasqua, who tells Ospina to keep playing for the moment. Napoli hang on. Three big points at Bologna. Victor Osimhen, the match winner. His second goal in Napoli colours is a crucial one. Great respect between Messrs Mihailovic and Gattuso. Bologna gave it a go, albeit a bit too late. The Azzurri needed Ospina in fine form to ensure the clean sheet and to hang on for the three points, which they did. Napoli surge up to third where they join Roma. They are very much in the title race. So as you heard, Napoli won 1-0 on a goal from Victor Osimhen. This was another interesting match. It was probably our best in a little while, but there were still a few things to be concerned about. Before we get into that, though, let's start with the starting lineups. Sinisa Mihailovic had two changes to the starting 11 that we were expecting. Lukas Skorupski started in goal. Takahiro Tomiyasu and Danilo started at centre-back. Lorenzo De Silvestri started at right-back. And Stefano Denswell started at left-back. We were expecting to see Aaron Hickey there, but he was not in the squad. And Mihailovic confirmed before the match that Hickey had picked up a minor injury. Jerdy Schutin and Nicolas Dominguez started in the double pivot. We had Matthias Vanberg with Schutin, not Dominguez. Musa Barro played on the left wing, Ricardo Orsolini played on the right wing, and Roberto Soriano played in the 10 spot behind Rodrigo Palacio, all of which was very much expected. For Napoli, Gattuso had two changes to our projected starting 11 as well, but the changes were not terribly surprising. David Ospina started in goal, Kaladu Koulibaly and Kostas Manolas played at center back. We had Mario Rui and Elcid Cusai giving Giovanni Di Lorenzo a rest at right back. Instead, Cusai played on his more favored left side and gave Mario Rui a rest, and apparently Mario Rui and Fauzi Gulam were left out of the lineup for rocking around too much in training. As expected, Gattuso went back to Tiamui Bakayoko and Fabian Ruiz in the double pivot. Lorenzo Insigne played on the left and Chucky Lozano played on the right. That was the other pick we got wrong. We had Matteo Politano starting. Finally, Dries Mertens played in the number 10 spot behind Victor Osimhen. 
Alright, so let's start with the positives. The first for me was the play in the opening half an hour. Prior to this match, Napoli had been starting slowly. We saw in the matches against Benevento and Rijeka, where we started really poorly, and only after we went behind the goal did we start to play, and we really didn't play well until Gattuso gave his players a kick in the ass at the break. Gattuso was furious after the Rijeka match. Speaking to Sky Sport, he said, There are no easy matches. We thought we'd take a trip, but it wasn't like that. Trip there is being used in the sense of vacation, so Gatsuzo is basically saying we thought we were going on a vacation. He added, we can't approach games like this, we have to grow, it's a problem that has lasted since last year. This team has had ups and downs for too many years, that's the problem. For 30-35 to minutes we scored 0 and we were surprised by their starts. We have to stay on track and not take the blows. Today we went well. Other than perhaps the opening couple of minutes where there were perhaps some nervous moments, Napoli dominated the first half. Pretty much every player on the pitch made meaningful contributions. The standout player in the first half was Chucky Lozano. The squad list had not been publicized when we recorded our preview, so we didn't know that Aaron Hickey was not in the squad. When Bologna posted their squad list, I tweeted that we need to attack the right wing because with Mitchell Dykes and Aaron Hickey both injured, Bologna were down to their third choice at left back who turned out to be Stefano Denswell. We had Matteo Politano in our predicted 11, but I was glad Gattuso went with Lozano. In retrospect, that decision made a lot of sense because we know that Bologna like to attack, which means there is plenty of space on the field. Mihailovic is always going to play his game, not adjust to his opponent's game, which I think worked against him here. Denswell really struggled to keep up with the pace of Lozano. He probably should have been cautioned in the 6th minute after obstructing Lozano from running onto Di Lorenzo's ball on the wing. Then of course Lozano played a large role in the goal. He burned Denswell on the wing before playing in a perfect cross to Victor Osman at the back post. It was great to see Osman get a goal. I don't know how he was left completely unmarked in that position on the field. It was also nice to see pretty much every Napoli player on the field take turns giving Osman a congratulatory hug one at a time after the goal. And credit to Manolas for winning the header over Soriano to start the break. Danilo did his best to try to stop Lozano with a ridiculous flying tackle in the 27th minute. I don't know how he and Mihailovic could possibly protest that decision. Finally, Di Lorenzo didn't make Denswell's life any easier with his overlapping runs on the right wing. The last positive I want to highlight is Napoli's defending. Gattuso has to be happy with that aspect of Napoli's play. Once again, everyone played their part. Bologna didn't register their first shot on target until the 73rd minute, and it was a really long-distance effort from Musa Barrow that Ospina stopped easily. Koulibaly was superb once again. He made an amazing, perfectly timed tackle on Orsolini in the box in the 21st minute. Insigne made an important tackle on Soriano at the top of the box in the 15th minute. Bakayoko has become a must-start in any important match. He's reliable, he's steady, and he's always calm on the ball. Giovanni Di Lorenzo made a textbook block on Palacio in the 57th minute. I'm referring to the 2020 edition of the textbook. Di Lorenzo had his arms behind his back when he made the block, which is why the VAR review was so quick. Then, of course, you had the scramble at the end of the match where David Ospina made a huge save on the first attempt and then LC Kusai made an excellent block on the rebound. I think Napoli fans are way too harsh on Kusai. I know he doesn't have the attacking abilities of Ateo Hernandez or Sergio Reguilon or even Mario Rui for that matter, but typically fullbacks who attack are also not quite as good at defending and Kusai has been solid at the back. Now, he did lose Orsolini on that chance at the end, but he made up for it with the block on Palacio and he had a couple of good clearances through throughout the match. So there was plenty to be happy about, but there were also a few things to be a little bit concerned about. 
The first is that we continue to struggle to score goals. Insigne and Mertens in particular need to be more clinical. Neither of them have been able to keep their shots down lately. Mertens had two good chances in the first half. Both ended up high and wide. I was less critical of the second chance as Takehiro Tomiyasu did well to close Mertens down, which forced the Belgian to try to go around the defender. Tomiyasu is an excellent defender. I think it's only a matter of time before he's at a big club. Insigne had a similar chance as Mertens first, but he rushed his shot a little bit. I don't mind him taking the shot, but he did have Osman open and he had time to take another touch. Sometimes not taking shots that you should have is just as bad as taking bad shots. That's been one of the biggest criticisms of Fabian Ruiz. We know from some of the goals that he scored last season that he has it in him. I don't mind him passing on opportunities with his right boots because he's all left, but he's also been passing up shots on his preferred left foot. He's had a few attempts go well off target this season, so I suspect his confidence is a little bit down at the moment. Now, I do think Napoli were robbed of a goal in the second half, which was unfortunate because Koulibaly hasn't scored a goal since April 14th, 2019, when he scored a brace against Kevo. The way he's been playing, he certainly deserves a goal, and the finish was quite nice too for a center back. I really don't understand how Osman could be called for a handball there while he's falling backwards. I agree with most Napoli fans who pointed out that if that's a handball, then Napoli should have been awarded a penalty as Osman was being pulled down. The only conclusion I can draw from that decision was that the referee, after consulting with the VAR, ruled that Osman was not fouled and instead merely fell to the ground. On his way down, he extended his arm, thereby making his body bigger. Fortunately, that decision did not cost us the win, which it easily could have with the way this match ended. That's the other negative I want to talk about. Even though Napoli dominated this match, the final 5 minutes and then the 5 minutes of added time were really nerve-wracking. I mentioned that Ospina save followed by the Qsai block. Ospina made another save on Rodrigo Palacio a few minutes later. Had we added a second goal, then these final minutes wouldn't have been so stressful. But at the same time, these were the types of matches we may have dropped points in the past, so I'm glad we hung on. So that's our review of Napoli's win over Bologna. Next, we'll recap all the other action from the round. In the final part, we'll recap the rest of the action from match day 7. Now that we're a bit deeper into the season, we'll change the order a little bit. We'll still recap every match, but we won't go in chronological order. Instead, we'll start with the matches of the greatest import. So with that, let's start with Juventus against Lazio. Lazio were once again without Ciro Immobile, Lucas Leiva and Thomas Strakosha, but Stefan Radu and Luis Alberto made their returns to the starting eleven. For Juventus, Cristiano Ronaldo returned to the starting 11 after coming off the bench against Spezia last weekend. Meanwhile, Leonardo Bonucci made his 400th start for Juventus. So this match started with a good pace to it. Both sides started positively and pressed their opponents. I did question whether Lazio would be able to maintain that tempo for the entire match. In the first half, Ronaldo showed how important he is to Juventus. He scored the goal, which Juan Cuadrado deserved a lot of credit for. He made an excellent run on the right wing before teeing up Ronaldo. Ronaldo nearly added a second in the 43rd minute, but his shot rocked the bar. I'm not the biggest Ronaldo fan, but the technique on this play was really excellent. He received the pass well and released the shot so quickly that Pepe Reina barely moved. It's also amazing how much power he got on the shot on the half step. 
Alvaro Morata also made a really nice turn around midfield to start that attack. Moments later, Ronaldo came close again after Dan Kulusevski won a free kick just outside the area. Ronaldo actually hit the target, which is something he struggled to do from free kicks last season, but Reyna made a good save. Lazio looked good in the midfield, but we're missing that decisive ball in the final third, and Vidal Murici just does not provide the same goal-scoring threat that Chiro Immobile does, though that's not something to be ashamed about, as very few strikers in Serie A do. As the second half wore on, Juventus sat back and defended, hoping to pounce only on the counter-attack. That's why I was surprised to see Pirlo remove Ronaldo and Kulusevski in the 76th minute, because they were the ones doing the counter-attacking. Now, Ronaldo did limp off the field after taking a knock trying to block Luis Alberto's shot. Ten minutes prior to that, Juventus counter-attacked after Kulusevski made an excellent play to split Luis Alberto and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic before running downfield and playing the outlet to Ronaldo. Ronaldo's cross was blocked, but he seemed to fall a bit awkwardly on his left leg and appeared to be in quite a bit of discomfort after that play. Then when he was off, the Juventus medical staff wrapped his ankle in ice. Paolo Dybala and Weston McKennie came on in their places. I'll touch on Dybala in a second. Pirlo had a short bench, so the only other change he made was to replace Morata with Federico Bernardeschi late in the match. That was probably just to kill a few seconds at the end of the match because Bernardeschi isn't a great defender. Credit to Lazio for playing hard all match, as they always do. I thought Inzaghi made some excellent changes too. Inzaghi made three changes in the 54th minute. He replaced Mohamed Faraz with Manuel Lazzari, Stefan Radu with Wesley Hote, and most importantly, Vedat Murici with Felipe Caicedo. Then in the 77th minute, Inzaghi replaced Luis Alberto with Andres Pereira, which he had to do in Alberto's first game back. And his final sub was to replace... Danilo Cataldi with John Daniel Akpa Akpro. Again, Cataldi couldn't play the whole match, and Akpa Akpro has been very good since joining Lazio. I have to give my friend Jerry Mancini a shout out here. A lot of Laziali were disappointed with Lazio's summer transfer window and their supposed failure to add depth, which we know was Lazio's downfall last season. But all along, Jerry has defended Claudio Lotito and Ilitare and insisted that Lazio have added depth, and he's been proven right. Even without a few important players, Inzaghi made five quality substitutions in this match. He certainly had more players to choose from than his Juventus counterpart did in this match. And Lazio have picked up results in the Champions League with even fewer players available. And of course, it was one of those players who scored the equalizer and added time. Who else but Felipe Caicedo who scored important goals late in three consecutive matches. First he did it against Torino to win the match, then he did it to Zenit in the Champions League to steal a point, and again he did it here. Joaquin Correa, who was excellent all match, made an amazing play to set up the goal. First he split between Cuadrado and Bentancourt to get into the box, then he cut between Rabiot and Bernardeschi before picking out Caicedo. Caicedo received the ball with his back to the goal but only needed two touches to find the back of the goal. One to receive the pass with his left foot and the other to fire into the bottom corner while spinning around. Now I mentioned Dybala earlier, he had a chance to play the ball to the corner and probably would have killed the game off if he did, but instead he ran the ball straight out to touch. That gave the ball back to Lazio and then of course they equalized. It's been of a bit of a roller coaster ride for Dybala. Before last season, Juventus were trying desperately to sell him and he basically rejected every offer. That ended up working out really well for Juve. Dybala was huge for Juventus last season, earning the title of Serie A MVP, but he picked up a thigh injury at the end of the season and with the short summer, he wasn't fit to start this season. 
At the same time, Juventus replaced Gonzalo Higuain with Alvaro Morata, who is probably expected to be the backup striker like Higuain was, but Morata has played so well that he just has to play, and if Juventus got Edin Dzeko, they would have had the same problem. A lot of people complain that Federico Chiesa and to an extent Dejan Kulusevski are being used out of position as wingers or wingbacks, but with all these players, where else are you supposed to play these guys? The way I see it, there are two ways to get Ronaldo, Dybala, and Morata in together. You either play a traditional three-man attack with Ronaldo on the left, Dybala on the right, and Morata in the middle, or you play Dybala as a trequartista behind Ronaldo and Morata and give Ronaldo and Dybala more freedom to roam. But in both cases, Keza and Kulusevski have to play left and right mid. If you play a four-man back line, that leaves only one other midfield position, which would probably be filled by Rabiot at the moment, or Juventus can play a three-man back line to get an extra position for a fourth midfielder like Bentancur or Ramsey when he's healthy, but if you do that, Keza and Kulusevski have to play as wingbacks. So Juventus really need to figure out this lineup before they fall too far behind in the table. Moving on, Inter drew Atalanta 1-1. Lautaro Martinez scored for Inter and Alexi Maranchuk scored for Atalanta. This was a really intriguing match between two clubs who have struggled to find their 2019-2020 form. They both play in a 3-5-2 with a heavy dependence on their wingbacks. They both have a lot of firepower up top. Atalanta always concedes goals and this year so do Inter. Daniele Dovetti let them play. He made a few non-calls that made you scratch your head in this match, but at least he was consistent, which is very important. 18-year-old Matteo Ruggeri made his first team debut covering for the injured Robin Gozens at left wing back. Johan Mojica had been playing for Gozens, but has struggled. I thought Ruggeri, who's from the municipality of San Giovanni Bianchi, which is in Bergamo, played quite well, and I think he did enough to pass Mojica as the backup to Gozens. Neither side scored in the first half, but it was still very entertaining. Both sides attacked from the wings, swinging dangerous balls into the box. Atalanta targeted Hans Hatabor at the back post, and in the 18th minute, Hatabor nearly scored with a cross, but Handanovic did well to adjust and push the ball over the bar. Both sides were missing the final decisive touch, be it from Lautaro or Sanchez for Inter, or Hatabor or Zapata for Atalanta. Sanchez had little influence on the match in his first start since returning to the squad, but Lautaro maintained the form he showed in the Champions League against Real Madrid. He scored with a lovely flick on an Ashley Young cross, so once again the attack started from the wing. That was actually Inter's first shot on target. In the 65th minute, Marco Sportiello made a massive double save on Arturo Vidal and then Nicolo Brella, which proved to be very important. Giampiero Gasperini responded by bringing in new signing Alexi Miranchuk, and sure enough, he scored the equalizer in his first Serie A appearance. Atalanta were all over Inter in the final quarter of the match, but despite Luis Muriel and Miranchuk coming very close, they were not able to score another goal. This match was dramatic until the final whistle. In the second minute of added time, Danilo D'Ambroso got a high boot on Miranchuk, who made a run to the back post, but the penalty wasn't given. Then, in the final minute of added time, Marco Sportiello appeared to follow Romelu Lukaku in the box, but that wasn't given either. Lukaku was making his first appearance since injuring his thigh, so he only played in the final 20 minutes. In the end, though, the 1-1 draw was probably a fair result. Milan drew Verona in dramatic fashion, finishing 2-2. Verona started quickly with two goals in the opening 20 minutes. Both goals came from set pieces. The first was from a corner kick. Antonin Barak tapped in his third goal in two matches after Federico Cecchettini's header hit the bar. The second was from a free kick. Matias Zaccani struck the ball really well with a volley from the top of the box. Zaccani's shot was heading towards the bottom corner, though Donnarumma was well positioned to make the save. Davide Calabria instinctually stuck out his leg, and the ball deflected into the goal. 
Zakani had an excellent match. Early in the match, he made a great run on that left wing to set up Kalinic, who was stopped, but that was the corner that led to the first goal. Zakani made a similar run early in the second half. He made a lovely little step over to get past Calabria before serving one up to Federico Di Marco, who really should have done better. That turned out to be an important miss. Milan were also fortunate to score on a Verona own goal. Frank Kessie made an excellent run, and Alexis Salamakers played an excellent ball from the wing. Kessie got just enough of a touch on the ball to freeze Gian Giacomo Magnani, who inadvertently deflected the shot into his own goal. Marco Silvestri stood on his head in this match. He made big save after big save, which is why he has the high save percentage of any keeper in Serie A. He stopped Salamakers in the 8th minute. He managed to adjust his body to stop a Rafael Leao shot that deflected off of Pavel Davidovic on the way to the goal. He made two big saves on Teo Hernandez on similar runs from the left side, and he made two excellent saves on Ibrahimovic, first in the 77th minute and then again in added time. Once again, Zlatan left his mark on this match. The man of the month of October actually had a very frustrating match until the very end. He missed a penalty kick in the 65th minute. That's his third miss this season, the other two coming against Sparta Prague and Milan. He also had a header hit the corner of the goal in the 76th minute. And like I mentioned, Silvestri foiled him on a couple of occasions. But the big Swede refused to be kept off the score sheet. In the 93rd minute, he headed in his 8th goal in Serie A this season. So Verona came within mere minutes of their first ever win against Milan at the San Siro. Instead, they had to settle for a draw. So those results opened the door for Napoli and Roma to gain some ground. Roma defeated Genoa 3-1 on a tripleta by Henrik Mkhitaryan, while Marco Piaccia scored the long goal for Genoa. On Saturday, Roma announced that Edin Dzeko had tested positive, so Borja Mahral started in his place. Mkhitaryan obviously had an excellent match. Even before his first goal, he came very close to scoring, but Mattia Perin made an excellent save to push Mkhitaryan's shot off the bar. That was in the 19th minute. The first goal he scored with a header, which just tells you about the quality of Genoa's defending there. On the second goal, Brian Cristante played a gorgeous long ball from well inside Roma's half all the way to Bruno Perez in the Genoa box. Then Perez played an excellent ball in front of goal with the outside of his right foot. Genoa didn't have much of the ball, but they managed to score a beautiful team goal. Nicolo Rovella, Miha Zach, and Lucas Larraguer made some quick passes before Gianluca Scamacca played Marco Piaccia through. So Roma are on a bit of a roll. They've won four of their last five, and their only loss was on the table against Verona. Like Napoli, Roma appealed that decision, and also like Napoli, that decision was upheld. Cagliari beat Sampdoria 2-0 on goals from João Pedro from the penalty spot and Nahit Hernandez. Other than a João Pedro header into the upright, neither side created much in the first half. The big talking point of the half was Tommaso Ojello being shown a straight red in the 40th minute. He pulled down Nandez after playing a weak back pass and knowing Emil Audero was not going to get there, but as the last man back, that's a straight red, which was confirmed by the VAR. In the opening minute of the second half, Cagliari were correctly awarded a penalty for a clear obstruction foul on João Pedro. The second highest scorer in club history stepped up and converted the penalty. Audato guessed correctly, but the ball squeezed beneath him. That goal was exactly what the match needed. The play really opened up after that with Sampdoria pushing for the equalizer. Being down a man that really exposed Sampdoria to the counterattack, often through Ricardo Sotil. Cagliari should have doubled their lead, but Napoli owned Adam Unes, who made his first start, tried to go it alone when he should have passed, and his finish was poor. Cagliari did double their lead in the 68th minute though. Nandez calmly beat Audero after a perfect long ball on the wing from Giovanni Simeone. Ricardo Sotil scored a third, but it was ruled out by VAR for offside. That was unfortunate because I thought Sotil deserved the goal for how well he played in this match, but in the end it didn't matter as Cagliari comfortably beat the shorthanded Sampdoria squad. 
Spezia beat Benevento 3-0 in a battle between two newly promoted clubs. Marco Sao got his first start with Gianluca Caprati suspended for two matches. Dom Fulam had to be removed early in the match with an injury, so he was replaced by Christian Maggio. Neither side registered a shot on target before Tommaso Pobega needed in the cross from Selva Ferrer. That's Pobega's second in two matches. Even though that was the first shot on target, Spezia dominated possession in the half, so that goal was certainly well-deserved. Benevento looked to respond right away. Within only minutes of the goal, Roberto Insigne hit the upright, though he was already offside. Moments later, Gianluca Lapadula hit the upright, and Marco Sao's hard shot was stopped by Ivan Providel. That was really the only positive play from Benevento in the entire match. This was probably their worst match of the season. Meanwhile, Spezia probably had their best match of the season. I thought Kevin Agudelo had an excellent match. He nearly scored early in the second half, but his left-footed strike from outside the box rocked the bar. Mbalanzola scored a brace in the second half. Those were his first and second goals in Serie A. Emmanuel Giassi made a really nice move to get past Christian Magion on the first one before crossing to Inzola. Finally, I was most impressed with Spezia's back line. It seemed every time Benevento played a dangerous looking ball, that back line pushed up in unison and Benevento were caught offside. So those were the entertaining matches over the weekend. There were some pretty awful ones as well. I'm not just saying that because they ended nil-nil. I've seen many entertaining nil-nil draws, which is something I've said before on this podcast, but these matches were just bad. Fiorentina drew Parma nil-nil in the final match of the round on Sunday. Bruno Alves returned for Parma after being out for a month, and Roberto Inglese started with Andreas Cornelius injured again. For Fiorentina, Jose Callejon was out after testing positive, and Igor and Eric Pulgar got their first starts. I joked on Twitter that I was having trouble sleeping, so I turned on this match, and I was out in no time. Fiorentina controlled play for long periods of the match, but didn't have many scoring opportunities. Cristiano Biraghi had Fiorentina's best chance of the match early in the second half, but Luigi Seppe did well to stop him. With about 10 minutes remaining, Gaetano Castrovilli blasted a shot on target, but it was straight at Seppe. Had the shot been on either side of the keeper, it likely would have found the back of the goal with how much pace was on the ball. Other than that, there wasn't a whole lot to talk about from this match. The big talking point came after the match. On Monday, Fiorentina announced that Beppe Iacchini had been relieved of his duties. Even though Maurizio Sarri and Luciano Spalletti are available, Fiorentina surprisingly announced that his replacement is Cesare Prandelli, who returns to coach the club that he once led to two fifth-place finishes and one fourth-place finish between 2006 and 2009. Some are saying that Prandelli is just a caretaker and the next season Sarri will sign because Sarri doesn't like joining clubs mid-season. I really don't get that. If Sadi joins sooner, he could use this season to figure out what he has and to develop a system. Sassuolo drew Udinese nil-nil. Domenico Berardi and Francesco Caputo returned from injury to play in this one. Neither side created anything in the first half. As usual, Udinese stayed deep and defended, looking to break on the counter. Sassuolo were making quick interchanges, but mostly in front of the Udinese backline. They struggled to penetrate that backline. Other than a late claim for a handball in the box, which was ridiculous because the ball didn't come anywhere near the defender's hand, Udinese did next to nothing in the attack. This was the third home draw of the season for Sassuolo. The one positive takeaway I have from this match is Sassuolo's young French midfielder Maxime Lopez looks like a really good player. Finally, Torino drew Crotone 0-0. Crotone were very physical with Andrea Bellotti. He had a player wrapped around them all match. Usually it was Lisandro Magalan. Sebastiano Luperto picked up two yellow cards in this match, both times for late fouls on Bellotti. This was a pretty unimpressive performance by both sides. The ball spent most of the match in the middle third exchanging hands. Neither side was able to sustain possession for any extended period of time. Crotone's best chance came at the end of the first half, but Salvatore Sirigu made an excellent save on Pedro Pereira. 
Torino looked dangerous in the final 10 minutes of the match. They nearly scored on a high looping cross by Amor Hozak, but Alex Cordaz got a fingertip on the ball to parry it off the upright. Then in the first minute of added time, Belotti did really well to win possession and outmuscle the Crotona defender before laying off the ball to Bonazzoli at the top of the box, but his shot took just enough of a deflection off Magalan to go wide of the goal. So even though Torino will take any points they can get, this was really a missed opportunity, especially after picking up three points midweek against Genoa. Torino could have gained some momentum with the win, but perhaps they were a bit tired from that Genoa match. Torino just don't have the depth that the top European clubs do to play twice a week. I'm really hoping they don't fire Gianpaolo though, because I still think he can turn this around, but for now, he's still employed. So that's our recap of round 7. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. We'll talk to you again later in the week, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forzanopoli Sempre. just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details